you're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. The word fungi used to be a very bad word in most gardeners' minds. However, over the last few years, I've noticed that the fungal kingdom has been getting a lot more love. In this episode, we're lucky enough to have on Ben Kendrick, who's a mushroom enthusiast with an excellent Twitter account that you're probably already following if you're on the platform and into mushies. Welcome to the show, Ben. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, no dramas. So how did you personally become involved and interested in fungi? Uh, so I forget the order of what it, when it happened. There was two main events that happened in close proximity. I had found a lion's mane mushroom in the woods one day, and I had also watched uh, Paul Stamets on the Joe Rogan experience. And I think if I had just watched him alone or found that mushroom alone, I might not have had that sparklet, but just seeing the things that they were talking about basically right in my backyard just made it seem more real that a person could just go pick mushrooms in the woods and eat it and it wouldn't be dangerous. <laughs> it wouldn't be dangerous. Um, there's definitely a lot to cover when we're talking safety, but um, it basically got me there. <laughs> so they say that fungi are more closely related to humans than to plants. Can you describe what fungal organisms actually are? So... They used to get called plants up until as recently as 60, 70 years ago, um, but they breathe oxygen similar to humans, and they breathe out CO2. Um, they have fruiting bodies like a plant, um, but they don't necessarily have seeds. They have spores, uh, which kind of differentiates them. And I guess they have sort of like mycelium, which are like little root-like things down the bottom of them too. Oh, yeah. Um, so the mycelium, you mostly don't see that. Even when I'm walking through the woods looking for mushrooms, I don't really see the uh, mycelium unless I've already like pulled up the stem or something. Then I might see a little bit of mycelium down there, but it's, uh, just like an iceberg. You don't see most of the fungus. You basically just see the fruits when they happen and they're kind of hiding all the time. Down beneath the surface. Yeah. And I guess not all fungi have a mushroom associated with them. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? So some don't necessarily need to have a mushroom. Some uh, fungi are very basic and just like single cellular. And they it would be kind of crazy if they ever coagulated into a mushroom, if you know what I mean, <laughs> like yeasts. Uh, they don't rep reproduce through mushrooms. Lichens, they don't have mushrooms either, but they're still a type of fungi mold uh they have kind of small fruiting bodies but you wouldn't call them a mushroom and uh depending on where you draw the line of your definition of mushroom there's also things called coral fungi um there's all sorts of different kinds like ramaria uh clavulina clavulinopsis and a whole bunch of different kinds that it would be a bit of a stretch to call them a mushroom but they're serving a very similar purpose <laughs> right so what do they look like? Um, basically, like you're under the ocean, uh, very <laughs> similar to a coral underwater. Uh, they, some of them are bright colors. Some of them are kind of white, like a bleached coral, I guess. The ones that I see the most are usually white, but there's purple, uh, there's yellow, 
gray and orange and I think a few others. There's actually there's a red one that might be growing close to you uh, mm. called a red fire coral. And that one might stand out quite a bit. <laughs> I think I've seen the red one. There's a yellow one that is so bright and you really can't miss it when you're walking around sort of Templestowe area. Oh, nice. Is it like mm. a single stalk or is it branched? Uh, I think it's branched. They're sort of like clumped together. There's like a bunch of them there. And yeah, it looks exactly like coral. Oh, nice. I'm yeah, not sure what that cool. one would be. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. <laughs> more of a plant, more of a plant man than a than a mushroom man, which is why I follow you on Twitter, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and what do fungi generally tend to eat? Um, mainly dead things. Um, or sugars is probably the two main categories I would put it into. There's probably better ways of categorizing what they eat, but uh, the things that eat dead things are considered saprotrophs, and they eat things like wood and just sawdust and dead plants and stuff like that. And there's other mycorrhizal fungi, uh, which they would eat things more like sugars, which they would get from trees that they partner up with in exchange for water. So they partner up with the tree. It's not necessarily always a kind of a parasitic thing. Uh, it's very rarely parasitic from what I can tell. Most fungi close to a tree are probably helping it, like 95%, I would say. Yeah, all the time I get customers in my day job as a maintenance gardener sort of coming up and saying, oh, this is a fungi, can you please get rid of it? And I sort of like have to sort of say, oh, you, you know, maybe you don't want to do that because it's probably performing a kind of a function for the plant. Yeah, and even if your tree was dying, the fungi growing off of it would just be recycling the nutrients. It wouldn't be bad. Mm. It would just be getting rid of your dead tree for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then we've got something like, you know, maybe there are parasitic ones as well. And all gardeners know about, you know, if you leave your, your roots in the wet too long, you're going to get some of that uh, mold in the soil and that's going to kill your plant. Yeah, there's some that we're still trying to figure out if they're parasitic or saprotrophic just because they're kind of blurring the lines. Like it's hard mm. to tell if they're picking weak trees or if they're um, actually attacking uh, attacking trees. <laughs> and uh, I think our malaria, mm. like honey mushrooms, are sometimes considered parasitic okay so it might be a case of sometimes the plant's dying and then the mold's there and you think the mold's doing the work but it's actually just there for the process it's just a part of that dying process sometimes yeah i think more often than not hmm that's interesting see i've always thought of um certain types of mold as necessarily bad but that's actually kind of like well, I guess not molds. Mold is usually pretty bad in the presence of a tree. But uh, if you see like an actual like mushroom growing like next to the tree or something, that's usually a pretty good thing. Um, if you see a mushroom growing like off of like the trunk of a tree, uh, that's probably a sign that the tree is getting weak. Um, there is the chance that that mushroom could be parasitic, um, but oftentimes it's just saprotrophic and taking advantage of a weakness. And what is a mycorrhizal fungal organism? So these ones are not the saprotrophic ones. They're kind of like the counterparts or the opposites to the saprotrophs. These ones are the ones that would be most likely growing close to a tree but not on it. They act as like an extension to the root system of the tree so that it can collect more water and withstand drought better in times of a lot of heat or just when you don't get rain for two months or so. Uh, it can extend the overall mass of the root system or 
I forget if it was mass or uh, volume uh, that I was <laughs> trying to quote here, but it, it really extends the amount of water that a, a tree can take in by partnering up with a fungus. Yeah, that's an example of a partnership between a, uh, a tree and a fungus where they both sort of win out there. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the trees will send sugars in exchange for the water that the fungi will send up. And the fungi will also send minerals like potassium and magnesium and just those little nutrients uh, too to kind of help the tree. It's mostly just sugars that the mushrooms are getting out of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just getting that carbon that the tree just sort of makes pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And also I read an article. I don't remember where I read the article, but they were talking about how mycorrhizae sometimes play a kind of a stockbroking role where they'll take nutrients from one plant that has a lot and they'll sort of trade with another plant and sort of like try and um, play the stocks and try and profit even more sort of through that trading. I think that probably definitely happens. It's not a, a concept that I'm personally that familiar with, but the, the fungi are really smart. And uh, I think the more that we research that, the more we're going to understand how much they're in control. Yeah, that it's kind of crazy. They are pretty crazy, misunderstood little organisms for sure. Oh, extremely. I, I've i only really been interested in fungi for two or three years now, but it was just like my eyes opened as soon as I realized that fungi is a positive word, not a negative word, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and you're actually a forager of mushrooms. Can you tell our listeners whether foraging for mushrooms is actually safe? Uh, situationally. Uh, you would want to make sure that you've researched the mushroom you're, you're trying to pick uh, quite thoroughly before ever picking it. You would want to have multiple friends to kind of refer to as a second opinion uh, that preferably know more about mushrooms than you do. You wouldn't want to pick some. You wouldn't want to eat something that you just picked now. Like say I found an unusual mushroom and then I googled it and found out that it was edible. That it wouldn't be a good idea to go home and just put it in the frying pan, even if it said it was edible on the internet, just because mm. there's the possibility that you could make the mistake. And uh, you really want to give yourself time to know that you know what kind of mushroom it is, and not think that you know what mushroom it is. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, because some mushrooms are going to give you a very long, slow, painful death, and some of them do look a lot like edible mushrooms. Yes. Um, probably the best example to use there is uh, the destroying angel mushroom. It's kind of an all-white mushroom. It To most people who only eat like the button mushrooms at the grocery store, they might think it looks really innocent because it's just a white mushroom like you found in the store. It even is supposed to taste really good, so people might not know to stop mm. eating it after they've started. Mm. Uh, but it's one of the most toxic mushrooms in the world. Uh, it will shut down your kidneys and your liver, and that's not something that would kill you within like three hours, like a drug overdose or something. That's something that the toxins in your blood would have to go unfiltered for like a week or so, or maybe five days before you just get so toxified and dirty blooded basically that you die from it you'd be having seizures the whole time throwing up it just wouldn't be quick <laughs> mm -hmm. not, not a nice pleasant way to go at all <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Make sure you know and, that mushroom if you're picking mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to put a little disclaimer here that we are definitely not encouraging people to go out and forage their own mushrooms because you quite literally are taking your own life into your hands when you do so. Exactly, and you wouldn't be able to blame it on anyone else. Uh, you have to play, <laughs> uh, take your own responsibility into your own hands, basically, when you're doing this. Uh, you have to be sure that you're doing a lot of research and a lot of people might not have the attention span for that, to be honest. <laughs> That's right. They're going to go for the quick thing and they'll yeah. sort of pick that thing and go, oh, good enough. Yeah, close enough. But mm. I would even say probably don't go out on your own at all. You probably need to go out with someone who's been doing this for a number of years who knows mm -hmm. the local fungi. Yeah. I could probably bring up that uh, fire coral I was mentioning earlier again. Normally, I would say that it's mostly dangerous to just put the mushroom in your mouth. I didn't like to eat it, but uh, that poisoned fire, fire coral is having reports that you can touch it and absorb through your skin, which is very uh, abnormal. Normally, you can just touch a mushroom barehanded and be fine, even if it's an extremely toxic mushroom. But with that poisoned fire coral, it's apparently enough to make you sick. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah, it uh, it doesn't grow where I live, but I think it's moved on to Australia, so I figured I'd bring it up for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, that sounds like the sort of thing I would do is definitely sort of reach down and sort of try and touch it and move it around and have a look, so try and avoid that one. Yeah, and then this one's probably the most minor warning I have for you here for mushroom foraging. Uh, allergies exist with basically any type of food, so even if something's mm -hmm. edible, uh, it might not necessarily mean that you can eat it because uh, you could have a, an allergic reaction. And sometimes that kind of, I, I just said that you can normally touch a mushroom with your bare hands, but I'm just going to uh, disagree with myself now all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, but let me explain myself. Um, you can have sort of an allergic reaction with your skin called contact dermatitis, uh, where uh, it's basically an allergic reaction. Most people aren't going to have it, but if you've had contact dermatitis from touching other objects, it might be a bad idea to be touching mushrooms raw because you might be more susceptible to having contact dermatitis while touching mushrooms. But uh, once again, that's probably not going to happen to most people. It's just one of those 1% things that yeah, you definitely have to give that disclaimer. <laughs> Mm, mm, that's a good one. So is mushroom appreciation only for edibles or are there inedible mushies out there as well that are worthy of interest? Uh, yes, it really depends on your interest, but there's a whole bunch. Um, the first one that I'm just going to bring up is polypore mushrooms are a little bit different than guild mushrooms. Uh, most people know what mushroom gills are, but not necessarily everyone knows what uh, mushroom pores are. And they're kind of an alternative reproductive structure uh, that some mushrooms will have. They drop their spores through these little tubes instead of through their gills. And the two main ones, or main groups of polypores are like wood growing. Well, this isn't a technical grouping, but I'm going to use this grouping. Mm. Woody polypores is something that people often say. It's not a scientific term, but they're... The polypores that would likely be growing on the side of a tree as a saprotroph. The other grouping are boletes, which are not woody, uh, quote unquote, 
they're a lot squishier and these are often more edible where the polypores are ra rarely edible or the mm. woody polypores are rarely edible i should say and mushrooms for dyeing fabrics are also something that comes up there's a lot of people who are really creative and they can make natural dyes of various mushrooms a lot of the ones that I find around here that are often used for dyeing are polypore mushrooms too. Cinnabar polypores are one. Uh, they're basically cinnabar colored, like a reddish, orangish kind of color. And then there's dyer's polypores, which are brown. And you can get all sorts of colors out of that one. I don't know how. <laughs> I think there's... Uh, well, I'm talking on a subject I don't really understand, but the people who do the dyeing have different things called mordants, and depending on which mordant you use, you get different colors out of the dyer's polypore. So are there any other sort of really weird fungi that you've come across? Well, there's uh, fungi that grow on fungi, kind of like fungiception. Uh, <laughs> fungiception. <laughs> So uh, they're called hypomyces. They're a really common group of fungi that grow on fungi. Um, the most common hypomyces is called the lobster mushroom, which is an, an edible one uh, that I think can be bought online, actually. Uh, it's it's like a mold. It's orange that uh, grows on russula mushrooms and other related mushrooms to russulas, I think, uh, milk caps as well. And it basically eats the main features on the mushroom until it just turns into this orange wavy mass. It's kind of cool looking. I'd recommend Googling it. I'll put a link in the show notes to a, an image in Google or something like that in the, for our listeners. Wonderful. Another weird fungi I could probably talk about and bring up. Um, I found a mushroom and this one's a good example of why you should definitely Google things pretty thoroughly when you uh, when you first learn something. I would have called this one Tricholoma equester, which is the scientific name for like a yellow night mushroom, I think is the common name. And there's these various chemicals you can use to look for strange reactions in mushrooms, because sometimes multiple species will look like the same mushroom. Um, but maybe one mushroom will react to this chemical one way and then another mushroom will turn a different color from that from that chemical mm -hmm. so i used koh solution uh, potassium hydrate and it turned purple when i used that solution on the tricholoma mushroom so that's not a reaction i could find on google associated with the species that i thought it was so I have a pretty good indication that it's not the species that I originally thought it was. So at this point, I'm I'm procrastinating, I should say, on sending in that mushroom to someone that knows better <laughs> because <laughs> it could be an indication that it's something that we haven't discovered yet. Um, mm. There's a lot of different species out there in the world, and there's not a lot of people that are studying it. So there's certain species complexes and groupings and sections of genuses if that makes sense to um I'm using sciencey words too much maybe <laughs> we've got an episode on i think it was episode 13 was um learning scientific names so if our listeners uh want to learn more about what the word genus and sort of things like that are you can go through and listen to that one wonderful 
There's um, things that will visually look almost identical to another mushroom, which is another reason why you really have to know what you're doing if you're foraging mushrooms. And uh, sometimes when you use these chemicals, you can, you can just get a weird reaction out of it and have a good clue that there might be a different species going on. I'm not saying for sure that the mushroom I found is a new species, but it, if something like that happens, it's a good clue that it could be a new species. Mm. Well, the fact that the fungal kingdom hasn't been researched very well is sort of an indication that there are obviously a lot of things out there that are undiscovered. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that is very exciting, really. I, I think <laughs> it's just as broad a kingdom, but I don't think people are really diving into it as much. So there's definitely a lot to be discovered. I don't necessarily, I don't know what is going to be discovered, <laughs> but mm. there's definitely something. and. A lot of areas probably don't have very many specimens sent in already. Well, if any of our listeners are sort of looking to go to uni and study something in the gardening realm, I think Mm -hmm. that fungal organisms is definitely a good place to sort of go because, yeah, like you said, it's sort of not not saturated. And I think that the way I see it is that people are becoming more and more interested in it. So I think that there's a big future there. I think so too. Uh, I think it would help both kingdoms of life if uh, if people took that in school, mm. or more than two kingdoms really, because then you would be helping all of the insects and animals and everything that depend on those plants and fungi. <laughs> yeah, I mean the whole natural system is exactly that. It's a system. Mm-hmm. It's a whole community that all depends mm. on each other. Mm. Just like how we have a heart and we have a liver and we have a stomach. Mm-hmm. They all work together. So what is lichen? Uh, simply put, it's a symbiosis between an ascomycete fungi and either a cyanobacteria or a photosynthetic algae. So there's a few different forms that could happen, but there's always a photosynthetic partner and a fungal partner is basically what uh, unites all lichens. Or that I know of, anyway. (laughs) Uh, Lichens tend to live in areas that are either very damp environments, like boggy areas, or just areas that have very clean air in general, like without a lot of pollution. There's certain species that are endangered due to pollution uh, in certain areas of the world. Lobaria pulmonaria is an example of one of them. It's uh, endangered in the UK, but where I live, it's actually one of the more common lichens, so it's probably a good example of how much pollution can impact uh, lichens. Um, (laughs) I don't think the pollution is that bad in the UK, but I think just where people are closer together, that probably impacts the lichens a lot more, where in Canada is just really spread out. Um, we're probably not a more green country, but there's just a lot more space for pollution to dilute, as <laughs> bad as that sounds. <laughs> so you're sort of saying that even though it looks like one organism, it's actually not one organism. It's actually going to be two organisms. And sometimes three, I believe. Oh. Um, I think there's sometimes more than one algae species going on there. Okay. But I believe the... The fungi basically provides a structure for the photosynthetic organisms to live uh, more sheltered, I believe. I think they live like within the chitin of the fungi, but that I 
can't verify that without Googling. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So I guess you'll you'll often see them, if you don't know what a lichen is, I guess you'll often see them on concrete, on trees, and they sort of, I guess they just look like what you would think of as a, I don't know, they look like lichen. They don't really look like a mold or anything. They look like what they are. That's a good way of putting it because they're definitely their own thing. There's some that are a little bit leafy looking, but for the most part, they're very plain, I guess I could call it. Hmm. Um, some of them are just kind of colorful looking, uh, like crusts that are growing on rocks. Um, there's folios lichens, which are leafy, like the Loberia pulmonaria lichen I brought up earlier. Um, some of them are kind of bluish, but, uh, it's really hard to describe what a lichen is. It's just easier to point at one and say, yep, that's a lichen. <laughs> yep. And then you'll know, even if it's a different type of lichen, you'll still know what it is. Uh, well, I don't know the lichens as well as the other, uh, like mushroom producing fungi, but I do know a few. Hmm. You can usually sort of spot one. You'd be like, that's not a mold. That's a lichen. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'll put a couple of, um, links to a couple of Google images as well for lichen, just in case our listeners don't know what that word actually means. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be great. Ben, you personally use iNaturalist as one of the ways to get an ID on your specimens. Can you explain how this application works? So there's a few different ways that you can get an ID from INAT. Um, you can either get human IDs or artificial intelligence IDs. I'd say that they're both useful in their own way. Uh, the, I usually start with the AI version, especially if I don't know what something is. Uh, I'll use that as basically a suggestion on where to start my Google searches on what to call it. <laughs> mm. But you definitely don't take the AI for granted. It's really good for preventing like mental blocks that could go on for two or three days um, <laughs> because then it just gives you this four or five different suggestions on species names on what you could be looking at. And that can really save you a lot of time if you just have to go and Google and think, does this make sense? maybe check a few other species in the genus that could look similar. And that kind of saves you a lot of the digging a lot of the time, I guess is the best way that I could explain it. Hmm. But then say that you don't know exactly what you were looking at, then there's the human element. I would say if you found a random plant, uh, the best thing to say is either plant or flowering <laughs> plant on your observation. <laughs> And then that kind of sorts it so that people that are uh, kind of specialists in flowering plants could maybe specify further and then say it's a relative to peas or something like that. It, maybe the, the flowering plant people could say that's a, in the order of abalies mm. and kind of narrow it down for you so that there's less to dig through. Mm. And there's a, kind of a majority rules thing for the IDs, just in case there's people that aren't as good at doing so, I guess. Uh, mm. If there's like one bad ID, then three people can say the correct ID and overrule that person. It's definitely good to use both, I find. You definitely need to have the exposure to other people and scrutiny on what you're trying to identify. And you like, the AI is also very useful for saving time. One thing to mention about iNaturalist, 
the ranking system. Uh, sometimes people think that because someone has a lot of IDs, then they're some sort of expert. But a lot of the times, that's just someone that's doing a lot of work, if that makes sense, where they might not have a lot of knowledge. And like, say, there's an unknown section on the website. People can just go through the unknown section for unlabeled things and say, hey, that's a fungi or that's a plant, and that will contribute to their ranking. Um, and honestly, help. I'm one of those people, so I just wanted to say that <laughs> oh, to make okay, sure cool. <laughs> people know that I'm not, not necessarily an expert, but um, hmm. you can definitely get a lot of work done just doing very simple IDs, and it's very hmm. helpful for a lot of people, I think. Right. So once you've put it into, well, that's a lichen, that gives them a sort of a, a bit of a head start on, okay, now I can t- ask the lichen people what this is. Yes, exactly. Okay. So it's really a social media platform, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, for nature geeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like using the human section for birds, I find. I find uh, the AI doesn't really work that well for me, but if I just say bird, uh, mm. there's a lot of people on there that are good with birds, and there's a good chance that within 24 hours someone's going to have it all the way down to species. <laughs> mm. Mm. There's definitely certain kingdoms and classes that have bigger communities than others, I'll say. But that website gives a social media platform for all the communities to mingle. Are there any other resources that you can recommend for IDing and learning more about fungi? Resources to recommend? I'd say Mm. Myco Quebec is a really good website for Canadians, if you happen to be close to where I am. Uh, It's basically a huge listing of species that have been identified within Canada or at least close to Quebec, not always in Quebec. Uh, There's a YouTube channel called Learn Your Land. Uh, This guy is from Pennsylvania in the United States, and he's very good covering fungal identification and plant identification on the same YouTube channel. he was a major help for me learning basically all the easy sus- or the usual sus- suspects when it comes to mushrooms. <laughs> and Paul Stamets is always someone that I'll recommend because he inspired me. So I'm sure he'll inspire someone else too someday. <laughs> mm. He's inspired me too, mate. He's a great guy. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to learn about? There's a charity called the Ecology Action Network, and they're basically a charity to help with the... They basically fight to protect land uh, close to where I live so that it's permanently uh, like a protected nature area. And they cover a lot of the legal aspect of getting that done and scrutinizing various bills to see if it, what the environmental impact is and protecting species. And they're a great charity to donate to. Thank you. Ecology Action Network. Cool. <laughs> and we'll have a link in the show notes for our listeners to um, check out that one as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. That was awesome. And I hope our listeners have learned a lot about fungal organisms. And thank you for having me on. I'd just like to make sure one more time that everybody knows we are not advocating for you to try the mushrooms that you foraged yourself especially unless you've done your own chemical test and spore print, as well as get a positive identification from somebody who's been doing it for a long time in your area. 
For most of us, mushrooms are best observed from afar. So make sure you're following Ben on Twitter, at Fungi with Benji, so you can keep learning about these incredibly mysterious little critters. Get on there and give me a follow too, at Plants Grow Here. Peace, love, and punji. <laughs>